only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello and welcome and thank you for joining me. Uh, today is the 31st of August of 2016. Well, September is right around the corner. Well, September is Thursday. <laughs> uh, it has been a very warm day. Uh, we've been in the mid-90s with humidity and, of course, the heat index is up there around the 100 degree mark. So it has been uh, a quite warm and wet summer so far. But uh, overall, we're still alive and, you know, thankful for that. And uh, just been a blessed day today. Uh, one that I'm truly thankful for. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. I thank you, dear Lord, for the breath I breathe and for the day which I have encountered. Your blessings abound each and every minute of each and every day, and I'm just so grateful for all that you do and continue to do. And I just thank you for the blessings of the family, dear Lord, for all seem to have had a fairly good day. And Lord, I just pray now that you just bless these words. Bless the ears that hear them, dear Lord. Believers or non-believers, dear Heavenly Father. You talk to them. You talk to their hearts. Let them open up to you. Let them come to know who you are. I just thank you. In your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing once again uh, with the Know you the Words of Jesus in 30 Days. And uh, we've been just kind of uh, making it along here. Uh, and this is a guidepost uh, production done by J. Stephen Lang. So we will continue if we let him go on like this. And what were the Sadducees' beliefs? As the Gospels point out, they did not believe in an afterlife. In this way, they differed from the majority of the Jews. They claimed that the only valid scripture were the law, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And since those books do not explicitly teach an afterlife, there is no afterlife. There were no correct, they were they were correct in observing that the Old Testament only clear indications of an afterlife are in the lightest books, such as Daniel, whose chapter 12, verse 2, was often quoted. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awaken some to an everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. The Sadducees claim that such a verse were imports of foreign and wrong ideas from the Persians who ruled over the Jews in exile. 
the Sadducees were relying on the argument from silence. Since the law did not specifically mention resurrection of the dead, the belief was not valid. Obviously, other Jews did not accept the line of thought. The Pharisee claimed that the, the resurrection was foretold in law in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 29. I put to death and I bring to life. But the Sadducees claimed this did not teach the resurrection, nor did Deuteronomy 11.9 so that you may live long in the hand that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants. With the Pharisees claiming that give to them means that the deceased forefathers will in time inherit the land, the Sadducees did not accept such interpretations, nor did they give any credence to Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones coming to life, claiming it was merely figurative. They mocked the believers in the resurrection for endless debating such questions, and whether the risen person would be naked or clothed, whether the risen body would have all its earthly imperfections, whether those buried far from Israel be raised in Israel, or on soil on which they died. These discussions amused the Sadducees greatly, and their question to Jesus was in fact exactly that sort of question the Pharisees would debate. And by posing it to Jesus publicly, they were sneering at the Pharisees and to the people in general who did believe in a resurrection. In short, the snobbish Sadducees were mocking the great mass of people, the poor folk, consoling themselves with the belief that they would have comforts in the next life that they did not have in this one. A cultural insight here. Being like angels in heaven, over the centuries people have applied Jesus' response to the Sadducees in curious ways. In the 1700s, Mother Anne Lee, founder of the American religious sect known as the Shakers, claimed that the age of resurrection had already arrived and that God's people should live celibate lives basing the practice on Jesus' words to the Sadducees. The Shakers lived in dormitory-like houses with separate stairways for men and women, and no one could converse with someone of the opposite sex unless a third person was present. In striking contrast to the Shakers was the Oneida community founded in 1848 by John Humphrey Nose in New York State. Nose, like Ann Lee, taught that the age of resurrection had indeed arrived and that people were now like the angels but while Lee taught that it was a mandated celibacy Nose taught that it was that it left people free to forgo normal marriage and engage in free love clearly neither lifestyle was keeping with the New Testament the Sadducees mocking question to Jesus had to do with how to apply Deuteronomy 25.5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must now marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her to marry her and fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall bear the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. The situation of a man fathering a son with his brother's wife was known as 
Lever, L-E-V-I-R, was Hebrew for brother-in-law, or specifically husband's brother. The Levert custom was rooted in the idea that a man lived on through his descendants. So when a man died before fathering children, his widow could still bear sons that were his technically, although fathered by his brother. In practice, Levert marriage had almost fallen into disgust by the time of Jesus. Also in practice, the Jews prohibited women from marrying more than three times. In other words, the question was purely academic, although it was exactly the kind of question the rabbis and their students, thought not the Sadducees themselves, loved to debate. Jesus obviously perceived the mockery behind the question. He makes it clear that the people's crude vision of the afterlife is wrong. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Heaven is not merely a constant of life on earth, but something utterly different. A transformation, totally new, a second birth in keeping with his overall teachings. The power as God is capable of much greater things than merely extending earthly life and relations further in time. And since Jesus agreed with the Sadducees, the common assumptions about the afterlife were not right. But whereas the Sadducees denied the afterlife completely, Jesus claimed it was more exalted state than most people imagined. When Jesus says the people of the age to come will be like the angels in heaven, this is another slap at the Sadducees, who did not believe in angels. Jesus also says that they are sons of God, which in the Old Testament passage is used to refer to angels, which is Genesis um, chapter 6 verse 2 and Job chapter 1 verse 6. Also, the Exodus passage that Jesus refers to states that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Thus he was reminding the Sadducees that the law did refer to angels, although the Sadducees always explained these references away. The Sadducees' question had been put to Jesus in the dilemma of having to choose, believe in an afterlife or believe in the law of Moses. His answer was both. In responding to the question, Jesus referred to one of the most famous incidents of the law, the faithful encounter of Moses with God in the burning bush. Speaking from the bush, God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is quoting the law. The only part of the scripture that the Sadducees accepted is truly inspired. In fact, he was quoting one of its key passages, the first revelation of God to Moses. Jesus handles the quotation in a way that the Sadducees could understand, giving weight to each word. He shows that when God appeared to Moses, he says he is God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had all been dead for centuries. If he is their God, then they must still be alive. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Like many Jews, Jesus saw the bush, which burned, 
but was not consumed as a symbol of God's eternity. For the bush, as for God's time, stands still, which is why the burning bush is an appropriate symbol for God. It is alive, burning, and yet not burned up. By referring to Moses' burning bush encounter, Jesus is telling the Sadducees, if they wish to quote Moses, as in the Levert marriage laws, they should also read what Moses said about the resurrection of the dead. Note that he asked them, Have you not read? And also asked, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? The Sadducees were obsessed with the law, yet they did not really understand it, were blind to its richer meaning. Their God was entirely too small, and Jesus understood that for them. God was really the temple, and the income they earned from it, nothing more. The powerful and eternal God that Moses encountered in the burning bush was powerful enough to create a heaven that was far different from life on earth. As happens so often in the gospel, Jesus responds to a ridiculous, nitpicky question designed to trap him in his words or to make him look foolish with a profound observation about God and man. He also makes a profound observation about the religious officials of his day. They did not know the scripture or the power of God. Appropriately, in the next section, we look at the power of God, raising a man to life, something the Sadducees believed was impossible. Take away the stone. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. Jesus, once more deeply moved, come to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. And Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore many of the Jews had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin what are we accomplishing? they asked. Here is the man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. So from that day on they plotted to take his life. And all of that was John chapter 11, verse 11, 23, 26, 33, 38, 39, 43, 48 and 53. 
One of the greatest chapters of the Bible is John 11, the story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. If you have time, read the entire chapter. Lazarus and his sister, Martha and Mary, lived in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. The sister sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Instead of responding immediately to their summons, Jesus stayed where he was two more days. During that time, Lazarus died and was buried. Jesus' deliberate delay was to show the power of God. Instead of healing his sick friend, he would raise him from the dead. He did so. And the mighty act provoked faith in many people, but hostility in the Jewish rulers. In chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. Lazarus was dead, buried, but this was like sleep, merely a temporary condition. Jesus was going to wake him up. Based on Jesus' words about Lazarus being asleep, the early Christians usually spoke of death as sleep, a temporary condition from which God would awaken them. Paul uses a sleep in the sense several times in 1 Corinthians 15 and in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's a did you know. Bethany, the home of Lazarus and his sisters, is today by the Arab name El Azari, after Lazarus. Visitors can see what is said to be the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus first encounters Martha, her first words express both dismay and faith. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And that's chapter 11, verse 21 and 22. Later, Mary expresses the same faith. Jesus tells Martha that Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus tells her, he himself is the resurrection and the life. The Jews of Jesus' day expected a boldly resurrection sometime in the future, but did not expect that individual would have been resurrected. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. There was a common belief that a dead person's soul lingered by the tomb for three days and then departed. Also, it was believed that on the fourth day corruption would begin in the dead body. The point of mentioning four days is that Lazarus is most assuredly dead, not merely in a coma. On two other occasions, the daughter of Jairus and the son of the widow Nan, Jesus had restored life, but in those cases the person was not yet buried. Lazarus was obviously a different case. In this story, Lazarus is a real human individual but also symbolizes every believer raised to new life by Jesus. As in the story of the man born blind, Jesus sees not a problem or a sorrow, but an opportunity. The blind can be made to see by the power of God. The dead can be raised by the same power. As he makes his way to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Part of this is in reaction to the death of his dear friend Lazarus. But there is no doubt that he foresees how the Jewish authorities will react to what happens. And did you know the rising of Lazarus was a favorite subject of the earliest Christian art 
nobility among the catacombs in Rome, an appropriate location being the burial place of so many Christians. The Lazarus miracle was being painted and carved long before artists depicted Jesus on the cross. The rising of Lazarus is where Jesus' divinity and humanity are both at their peak. He raises a man who is several days dead, and he weeps over the loss of a dear friend. It is also the high point of people's feelings about him. To his friends he has performed the supreme miracle. To his enemies the miracles is their signal that he must be destroyed, not merely questioned or harassed. The story moves immediately from Lazarus emerging from the tomb to the plot to put Jesus to death. The Supreme Council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, meets together first to lamentate that the blind was healed and the dead resurrected, and then a plan to exterminate the miracle worker. Their bureaucracy, their prestige, their place was being threatened. Alert readers must discern something almost comical here. The Pharisees and priests plot to kill a man who has raised people from the dead. Doesn't it cross their minds that he might come back from the dead himself? Such a profound and obvious thought does not occur to them, and they are focused on their own petty concerns. Also remember that many of these men were Sadducees. They did not believe anyone could be restored to life, even if witnesses swore to it. Jesus has gained a great following through his miracles, and this could lead to trouble with the Roman overlords, and the Romans might retaliate by getting rid of the whole Jewish bureaucracy. Uh, did you know the shortest verse of the Bible, John 11.35, is Jesus wept. Probably the worst condemnation of the Jewish bureaucracy is found in chapter 11, verse 50, 53. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. The unspiritual Cephas, Cephas, the high priest, justifies the plot by stating that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Chapter 11, verse 50. Without knowing it, he has spoken a prophecy. It truly was better in God's plan for one man to die for the people. No passage of the gospel shows the Pharisees and the priests, the devout laymen and the chief clergy in worse light. They are shepherds of the Jews, yet they are rogues. In their spiritual blindness they do not see a divine giver of life, but a criminal who must be killed. The theme of this story of the man born blind is spiritual blindness. People unwilling, unable to see the power of God at work. What are some occasions in your life when at time you could not see the power of God working? What opened your eyes? The encounter with the paralyzed man is an example of total healing. The man's physical problem is cured and his sins are forgiven. Make it a point whenever you pray for an ailing friend to pray both for physical and a spiritual healing. 
And Jesus scolded the Sadducees for not understanding either the Scripture or the power of God. Try to take an objective look at your own spiritual life. Does your own knowledge of the Scripture need to be deepened? Could your faith in the power of God be increased? In John 11, we see that Jesus wept, and yet he raised Lazarus from the dead. How does the whole episode affect your belief in Jesus as both human and divine? After hearing this chapter, what is your impression of the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day? In what ways were they unworthy shepherds of the people? Well, I hope and pray that uh, you do ponder some of these uh, questions that are put together at the end of each uh, session that we do, putting the word to work. You know, uh, my heart is heavy in a sense that we have such abundance, such life, such vitality, and yet we suffer so greatly. And we suffer because we've turned our back on God. We don't realize we failed to realize, we don't want to realize that he's the reason for all of this, for us breathing, for us walking, for us talking. Each and every one of us has a purpose, a purpose, a purpose in life, a fulfillment of a better life for each and every one of us is what he has in mind for us. You know, for a long time I walked in darkness. And then when my eyes were opened, I, I <laughs> you know, I'm so thankful, so thankful that, that he saved me. His son, Jesus Christ, came and saved me. Now, if you take a look at that individually, because, I mean, he did it for each and every one of us, individually. You know, he said, hey, I'm going to go die for Mark, John, George, Luke, Elizabeth, Mary, whatever your name is. He died for you. And through his Father, Jesus Christ, he was raised again. And all it takes is believing. Believing. There is a creator. You just didn't happen by boom, <laughs> you know, and little bugs in a pool. And all of a sudden, you know, here you are intellectual, walking, talking, thinking doing, creating, not creating, but, uh, yeah, creation, you know, not creating anything new, creating things out of whatever's already been created, you know, bringing forth, having thoughts, improving lives or destroying lives, whatever your business is, 
But there will come a day, there will come a day, when every knee shall bow and claim Jesus as Lord. And I just pray that when that day does come, that you'll be on the joyful side of praising your Lord, our Lord, my Lord. Because the alternative, you know, it's like I have a friend right now that I pray for. <laughs> you know, and he's always joking, you know, about, uh, oh, yeah, well, I hope he doesn't strike you dead because, of, you know, you're praying for me or whatever, you know. And, and, my <laughs> and only, and it, uh, he's a pretty smart guy, but uh, he has no, no thought or desire at this time. To believe it's kind of sad but all I can do is continue to pray for him and hopefully there'll come a day when he will see the light and that he won't be blinded well uh, that's it for this program for today uh, the next one Hosanna to the Son of David um, that we will begin on Friday Heavenly Father I do thank you for this day and I just pray Lord that you just bless the ears that hear this program and I just thank you for all your blessings Heavenly Father you are so good so good and I just ask and pray that each and every one of you that has ears that do hear. Deepen your, deepen your walk. Deepen your walk. Strengthen that relationship with God because it will definitely be needed in these last days. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. In Jesus' name I do pray. Amen. Have a blessed and safe uh, day and we'll see you next time.